Well, hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, we're continuing the book The Cruises of the Joan by W.E. Sinclair. We're on part 11 and we're reading chapter 17. Now, if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com and there for $5 a month, you can help support the podcast. We can keep recording these books and keep the record there available for sailors in the future. Now on with the story. Chapter 17. Copenhagen to Stockholm. Within an hour after our arrival in the second-class harbour of Copenhagen, we were overwhelmed by the hospitality of the Frem Yacht Club. We dined in the clubhouse and were introduced to all the members present who were of sufficient importance. This was the third time we had dined ashore, and we ate consequently our third beefsteak. Throughout Denmark and Sweden, I was always unlucky in this respect. If I merely asked for some dinner, they were sure to bring a steak. If they presented me with a bill of fare, I always by some mischance pointed to the beefsteak. It did not matter what the word was or how it was spelled. It meant beefsteak for me. Never did I see a native eat a steak. During the meal, we tried to make ourselves agreeable. It was a difficult thing for me to do because I was hungry and had good teeth and our kindly hosts of the Frem would keep introducing me to somebody and every time this happened, the whole circle stood up and bowed repeatedly. The bowing was difficult for me to perform for they knew when to bow and I did not. They took it in good part and I made little speeches which somebody translated. The one easy part of the business was to remember their names. This is the only important thing which I have remembered. Everybody was named Hansen. It simplified matters very much. I reminded them of their offer of a week before to haul up the Joan for a scrub and I improved upon the offer by suggesting that they should leave me in the yard for a few days so that I could paint the boat. Next morning, Jackson went home and the boat was pulled up and she remained ashore for a whole fortnight. I burned off her topsides and gave her three coats of paint. She looked handsome then, better than she had looked since I had first bought her. I wanted to sail on one of the local yachts that were solely used for racing. No, that's not quite true. Most of them had a cabin with a coach roof and two bunks. Twice I sailed in one of them in a race and a cruise. The race was uninteresting because there was no wind that was perceptible. Yet even in that imaginary air, the boat I was on moved at four knots. What I wanted to learn, however, was how these boats behaved in bad weather and in a bad sea. Everybody told me that they would do well, but nobody knew. I was really anxious to know this because the greatest fault I had to find with my boat was that she was slow. Four knots is her maximum when conditions are in her favour, and they seldom are. Why she could not move faster, I did not know. There was one member of the Frem with whom I had become particularly friendly because he spoke English rather well and was very much interested in boats. When I told him of my sail in the racing yacht, he smiled knowingly. You should see our boat. It sails much faster than the one you've been on. We won lots of prizes every year and yet she's a good, comfortable cruising boat. In speed, she can beat any boat on the station. She is a magnificent sea boat and everyone in the club acknowledges the Tove is far and away the best boat here for racing and for cruising and for comfort and appearance. We've an auxiliary engine, which we remove when the racing season proper starts, and really, I've never seen a boat to equal ours. He took me to where she lay, and she did look smart and attractive. There was a gaff mainsail on a boom that did not overhang the stern, and she had a single headsail without any bowsprit. 
Like most of the boats, she had a canoe stern, a curved stern post, and the rudder was entirely outside the boat. The cabin was fitted for all that a sailing man could wish. There were sleeping accommodations for four without squeezing, and the engine was easy to get at, and yet it was so tucked away that no one would guess that there was an engine. The lighting was by electricity. In fact, everything was ideally perfect. Nobody could have designed and built a better boat on a 25-foot waterline. Here was exactly what I wanted, and if I could have purchased her for a year on trial just to learn and know what she would do, wow, what should I have learned? Would she have proved herself the able sea boat they said she was? Would all those admirable contrivances have worked for long? There were many members of the Frem who were interested in the Joan, and a few extended their interest temporarily to her owner. When it was known that I had nobody to sail with me, this interest became compassion, and they condoled with me upon my unfortunate loneliness. When they learned that I meant to go to Stockholm with a partner or without one, the advice they gave me was, don't. Their reasons were many and significant. Stockholm was as far from Copenhagen as the distance I had already come from London. By the time I reached Stockholm, supposing that I ever did reach that place, the prevailing winds would be against my return. The Danish islands were far more beautiful than the Swedish, the navigation easier, and the inhabitants more kindly. They asked me why I wanted to go to Stockholm. Naturally, I did not know. I thought it a silly question. I wanted to go, so why bother about manufacturing a reason? Well, if you will go, they said, we suppose you will. You're sure to find somebody to go with you. We shan't let you go alone. And somebody did offer to come with me. One day while I was out sailing on Tove, my friend said, if you like, my cousin will join you. He is taking his holidays and he would like to come with you as far as Stockholm. Well, that's a bargain, I replied and shook hands with his cousin, Eric Mayer, to signify that the bargain was clinched. Then I laid in provisions at Copenhagen. I adopted the Danish method of nourishment, sandwiches. I bought several loaves of black bread, good hard tack and all kinds of sausage structure to help the bread down. We used to cut the thinnest possible slice of bread, spread the thickest possible layer of butter on it, and between a couple of these wafers, we put thin slices of the other stuff. You could thus prepare a sound, satisfying, and tasty meal in a few minutes. I very soon grew to like this method of feeding. My new partner joined me in good time one Sunday morning, and at about nine o'clock we set off with the rest of the yachts cruising to Dragor. We were hopelessly beaten, for we arrived in the little harbour as most of the Frem boats were getting ready to return. Dragor was filled to overflowing with yachts. It was Sunday. It was also a summer feast day, whatever that may be, and I fancied that several clubs had settled upon this day for their cruise to Dragor. The Joan packed herself among the crowd, and we walked around the village, saw the summer feast where they had roundabouts, and after dining aboard, we decided to go away. The wind, being fair and light, wafted us out of the harbour without any trouble on our part, and we laid a course for the southernmost point of Sweden. It was a gentle sail, but we rounded the point soon after daybreak in spite of the gentleness. Then the wind died away to come up east. We had to beat. The freshening wind and the discomfort soon decided us to go to the nearest harbour until the wind should change. The chart showed us an excellent harbour at Trelleborg, and accordingly we headed for it and secured ourselves there about midday. The customs examined us, but not too severely, and several people showed signs of interest in the British flag. 
One little old man asked us where we were from, and I told him, Dragor. He was indignant at the answer. But you're an Englishman, aren't you? You fly the British flag. Oh, well, we've come from London. The little old man, who had bright, sharp eyes and more animation than most people of his years, spoke excellent English. He asked innumerable questions, offered his services to show us round the town, which he said was well worth a visit, and then he complained of the dullness of his life. He had been an A.B. for thirty-odd years in English ships, mostly full-rigged sailing ships, and now he was passing the latter part of his days in a tiny place that afforded no facilities for such as he. It was goodness knows how long since he had tasted whisky. We had some on board, of course. All English yachts carried whisky, and when I solemnly swore that there was not a drop on board and not even any beer, he looked offended at my trying to persuade him to believe such an obvious lie. English and no whisky? Impossible. But he finally became convinced that he would get no whisky, whether we had any or not, and therefore he vanished. If I'd had any spirits, I should have liked to stand him a drink. Still, I think perhaps that would have been foolish. One drink would not have satisfied him. I was glad to be rid of him in spite of his agreeable manners and perfect English. I detest guides and showers round of all kinds and discourage them as much as I dare. The town could be seen much better by my own eyes if I felt like looking at it, and I did not feel like it. All I desired was to change some English notes into Swedish money, for what had been left over from Malmo was so safely hidden somewhere in the boat that I could not find it. I had clean forgotten where it was stowed. When we went into the town, however, we found that the banks were all closed. At closing time was two o'clock, so we sauntered along a couple of hot streets and wondered at the magnificence of the post office and the railway station and the steamboats and admired the harbour and the steam navy which was at work enlarging it. From Trelleborg we went on to Hammerhaven, at the north end of Bjornholm, an island belonging to Denmark. Everything was quiet, gentle, perfect on the passage. The wind was fair and light but sufficient, the water was smooth, the sun shone all day and the night was warm. It did not seem quite right to have such a long sail without a break in its calm enjoyment. But from start to finish it was perfect, so that naturally there is nothing more to say about it. Arrived off the entrance to Hammerhaven at daybreak with a good strong breeze blowing in. I thought it advisable to heave to and read up the description of this harbour in my sailing directions. I had read it before, of course, sufficiently to learn that Hammerhaven was a good place for me to be in, but I did not remember enough of the description to keep a workable picture of the harbour plan in my mind good enough to rely upon in sailing my boat there. There were two entrances to go through. You went straight in through the first and a hundred yards or so past a wall on your left, you had to turn sharp left through the second entrance into the harbour proper. In this inner space was a quay for cargo boats and a floating wooden pathway for yachts. How many boats there were inside, I did not know. Having learnt all this and made a sketch from the written details, I stowed the foresail and mizzen and went in. We went in like a shot from a gun, rounded into the inner harbour in a matter of seconds, took most of the way off the yacht by luffing, and then slid alongside a cargo boat to which we tied. Then we rolled up the jib and lowered our main. As soon as we had in this way lost control of the boat, the harbour master came along and ordered us to shift to another berth on the opposite side of the harbour. A delightful place is Hammerhaven. High hills, ruins and lighthouses around. No house but that of the harbour master in sight, though there was a hotel a mile away up the hills and among the trees. 
A couple of miles off on the eastern side of the island was a small village which was a flourishing watering place. It contained many big hotels and a sandy bathing bay. When we saw it, there were groups of people in bathing costumes reclining under big coloured parasols. The picture reminded me of beachcomber's strands in the South Seas. I've never seen a beachcomber's strand there, but my imagination has a definite picture of one and Sandvig was like it. We stayed in Hammer for three days because the wind, though fair, blew hard. On the third, the wind was more convenient for a passage north, but it blew dead into the entrance of the harbour. This entrance was exceedingly narrow, too narrow for the Joan to beat through, especially with some little swell, so we hired a motorboat to tow us out. The Joan ended safely in Kalmar the next afternoon, after a fine sail from Hammer to the entrance of Kalmar Sound. The wind increased more than was pleasant at this point and drove us up the sound faster than we wanted to go. Squalls made us reef and heave too. The rain found out the defects in our oilskins and these seemed to be made of non-waterproof material. Mists alarmed us and we knew our position but vaguely, but we did know that we were tearing up a narrow, torturous channel of which we knew only the description given in the sailing directions. Our chart was on too small a scale to be of use and I swatted the Swedish system of buoying channels and fairways. It may be clear enough to the Swedes, but I can make nothing of it. We watched the course of three steamers we were lucky to see. We learned a few facts from our guidebook, and lastly kept our eyes skinned and our attention alert. What an exciting entry it was. Whenever we saw a rock sticking up, we kept away from it. Where we did not see rocks, we wondered how close to the surface they might be, and wherever we saw a buoy, we wondered which side of it we ought to go. We got in, however, without coming to any harm and tied alongside a quay in a well-protected basin. The customs came aboard, two of them this time, and they laid themselves out to search the Joan. And they searched her most thoroughly, all the lockers and under the flooring. I thought them a pack of fools and vowed to myself that I'd go straight to Stockholm, land my crew there and then get away from Sweden for good and all. All the packing which had to be done so carefully on the Joan had to be undone. Even my packet of ship's flare lights they tore open. At the end of it, they gave me a certificate that they had searched me and said that it would prevent my being searched again. I hoped it would. The Swedish customs are not the only foolish people, however. I know one customs office where I am regarded as a highly suspicious person whom they long to catch one day or another and they fully expect to catch me too. Yet the Joan carries not an ounce of contraband and never has done. Why I should be regarded as a typically smuggler-like being, I do not know. It is a mystery to me. At Kalmar, we had a visitor, a Swede, who had spent many years in England on English ships and in business. He had now settled at some shipping business in Kalmar and was much interested in the Joan. He invited Eric Meyer and me to dine with him at his home, and I was delighted to go there. It was the only time I ever had the opportunity of seeing the inside of a Swedish home and learning a little, a very little, of what a Swede does there. Going foreign would be much more worthwhile if only you had a native pal whom you could visit and talk with and learn a little of his way of looking at things. Restaurants, wine shops and such public paraphernalia seem to be pretty much the same wherever you go. They lived in a flat which was far more attractive and comfortable than one would have judged it to be from the outside. The rooms were large and much furnished and I admired the large cylindrical stove which stood upon the floor in each room and reached pretty nearly to the ceiling. 
The dinner contained many items which were fresh to me, but I tried everything which came my way and suffered no harm. Sweden was a dry country, our host explained as he poured out the drinks. My host and I talked to one another and Eric talked to the ladies. He spoke in Danish and they replied in Swedish. I never properly grasped the relationship between the several languages of Scandinavia. As far as I could make out, the Danes and Norwegians could write to each other but were unable to talk. On the other hand, the Swedes and the Danes could talk to one another but were lost when they wrote letters. What happened when a Swede met a Norwegian? I did not hear. My Swedish friend advised me to get further charts for our journey to Stockholm, and after what I thought our surprising luck in getting into Kalmar with a whole boat, I was prepared to buy the best that could be had. I got half a dozen sheets, but they were not of much service except in coasting outside the fringe of rocks which make up the Swedish Skærgård. To venture inside by yourself without any previous experience of them and the passages between, you would require a chart on a scale of one inch to one foot. The sailing directions refused to give any sailing directions. We went out from Kalmar with a fair wind and strong. It continued fair for 24 hours and we shook out our reefs before we cleared Kalmar Sound. During the sail this day, I heard a bark and looking round saw a dog's head showing above the water. Poor wretch, I thought. A dog here, exhausted and about to sink. How the dickens did he get here? And what am I to do? If I haul him up on board, he looks a big fellow and I know nothing about dogs. He might turn nasty. At the end of these reflections, I looked back again. The poor animal had disappeared. Well, it can't be helped now, I continued in my thoughts. Perhaps it's best after all. Then I heard the noise again and turned my head and I was astonished to see a dozen of such heads above the water. I called the Dane to come and look. He said at once, Seahund. I discovered they were seals. By noon the next day, the wind had died away and came dead against us. I had no liking for a 50-mile beat against it, and my first thought was to find an anchorage among the islands for the night. But a glance at the chart assured me that this would not be an easy task. The coast was studded with small islands and reefs awash, and my chart, the best I could buy, was of too small a scale to navigate safely by its aid along such a rock-strewn shore. The only harbour that appeared possible to get into was Vestavik. The sailing directions distinctly refused to give directions because the entry was too difficult to undertake without local knowledge, but I decided to risk this and follow the channel marked by a dotted line. We hove to and let the boat work her way inshore by herself while we studied the chart and the book of descriptions and the buoys and the landmarks so that we might find our position very exactly. We saw Sparrow Lighthouse and a boy or two, and we saw three schooners going south among the islands. One schooner appeared to be making for the channel into Vestavik, and when I was convinced of this and of our position, I told the Dane to follow the schooner. While he steered, I conned the chart, laid out the course, watched the compass and the shore marks and the schooner. Presently, she disappeared among the hills, and we were left to our own resources. I thought Kalmar was an artful place to get into, but after making the entry into Vestavik without a pilot and doing it so successfully that our keel spoiled only one rock, I think that Kalmar is child's play. To get into Vestavik, you have to find your way for four miles in and out of passages around rocky corners between tiny islets. The channel is buoyed and some people would imagine that made the going in a simple matter. I found it a thrilling piece of navigation. 
We found nearly all the boys, and after turning two right angles between rocks upon which the waves gently foamed, we swung into the creek. No town was to be seen, however, and no schooner, and I wondered what was going to happen. Then we spotted a spar boy and a tiny islet, a bare rock upon which stood two men with fishing rods. On the tiny scale of my chart, the picked line left this island to port, and so we left it to port, and there were very few yards of water between this island and the mainland. I went into the cabin to examine the chart again, and almost at once I heard and felt a grinding and a bumping. We were on the rocks. I dashed out and took the tiller myself. If there was going to be a shipwreck, I was going to do the wrecking myself. The boat was now afloat again, and at the moment I was swinging her nearer the shore, a man in a passing motorboat waved me in the opposite direction. I took his advice at once, and we found the Boyd Channel again. I had mistaken that island for one a few hundred yards further in. Another rock awash in the middle of the channel, although marked by a beacon, put me on the alert again, but we had no other mishap. Sailing another couple of miles up the creek, we saw the town, made the entrance to the harbour, and the rest was easy. A customs officer came along in a dinghy, examined our papers, and to my relief, he was so satisfied with our Kalmar certificate that he did not search us. Instead, he told us where we could lie in peace, and there we went. The boat was soon tied up along a little wooden causeway that formed one boundary of a tiny yacht basin, and with our fenders out and warps secured, we lay quietly for days and days while the wind blew in just the direction we did not want it to blow. Vestavik, with the surrounding country, is a beautiful place. The low hills, thickly wooded, and the miles of sheltered, tideless waters give you all the opportunity you can desire for walking or sailing. I walked. I do not greatly love sailing unless it is to make a passage. Besides, in these waters, you want a racing craft, and the Joan will not race. So we left her along by the causeway while we did whatever jobs were required to be done at least a few of them, for I am afraid they will never all be finished. Vestavik kept us weather-bound for a whole week, and by that time I had made up my mind to go away whichever way the wind blew, provided that it did blow and that it was not too hard. The exit through the winding fairway to open water was almost as exciting as our entry had been. We were obliged to beat for about a mile through the narrowest part, and we did not know how narrow the channel really was, but we did know the rocks were pretty close on each side, for we could see them, and there was always the chance of hitting one before we turned. Besides, I had become, if possible, more confused concerning the Swedish system of voyage than I was before, and my Dane and I disagreed two or three times about which side of the buoy the channel lay. To please both parties, I went my side once, and his side the same number of times. Nothing happened. Fortunately for us, the Joan draws certainly not more than six feet, and the channel was buoyed for vessels drawing 18 feet, so that we had a little to play with. At one point, on the way out, I looked round and counted seven lighthouses and beacons on rocks and mainland. They were all leading marks for something or other, but heavens above knew what that something was. Certainly, we didn't. Outside, the wind was light and dead against us, and it was not until we had slowly turned half of our journey that we were favoured with a leading wind, and later with a fair one, so that after leaving Vestavik on Wednesday morning at 8 o'clock, it was not until 1pm on Friday that we passed Landsort, the southern entrance to the rocky coastal archipelago which covers the approach to Stockholm. 
We then had 430 miles to worm our way through narrow channels. The wind was light and it grew lighter as the afternoon wore on and we found ourselves creeping into ever-narrowing waters. I looked out the anchorages and found in the sailing directions the description of two convenient ones. We chose the further one and by luck and hard work at the sweep we contrived to get into it and anchor by nine o'clock when it was almost dark. The anchor dropped plumb into six fathoms and took all the chain I chose to give it exactly on top. The chain hung straight up and down all night. When we pulled it up in the morning, it was still all of it straight up and down. The name of the place was Elfsnabben, and unless this has some connection with elves and fairies, it is a misnomer. I have tried a dozen times to describe it in words in order to satisfy my own feelings about the place, but I have failed. Rocks, grassy swards, pines, still water and clear made it a dreamlike anchorage for the Joan. In the morning, I saw a cottage or two, dark red among the dark green. There were no other boats than ours, and Elfsnabben could have sheltered hundreds. They say it is a favourite anchorage for vessels delayed by the fog. We thought we were wonderful fellows to find it in the daylight, and fog too, Elfsnabben in a fog, it would be like a fog in paradise. I hope one day to visit Elfsnabben again and lie there at anchor for days and days. No people, no houses, no noise, at least not enough to attract anybody's notice. Next day, we sailed out of our heavenly anchorage and made a 20-mile passage through... Oh, I give it up altogether with these names. The sun was shining, the breeze was fair, and the streets were rivers of delight through which we glided round islands of pine-adored rock, past little toy lighthouses. One of them was a riding light hung on a hook. Delaro was a gem which we passed on the way, gleaming with islands and dwellings and yachts. There were bays and gulfs to pass and long creeks whose ends twisted away out of sight. That scareguard was a winding maze of beauty and I could have sailed on through it for days and days. We found the anchorage of Sal's Jobadon, which we were advised to stay at rather than go to Stockholm itself. It proved to be a watering place of the highest class, higher than any I had before visited. By dint of a little worrying, we were now given a mooring at which we tied the bow of the boat to a buoy and our stern to a wooden causeway, upon which we could step to go ashore. It was well tucked away in a corner, and we were less annoyed by visitors than usual. My companion left the boat that evening to join his friend in Stockholm, and I found myself at last left single-handed. I spent the Sunday wandering around Saljabaden, and I'm not going to say anything about it. Every place in this scareguard appeared finer than any other, and it is useless to use up all my words of praise. There are many other places in the world just as fine, there must be, and when I see them, what shall I be able to say if I haven't already awarded the palm? Well, that's the end of today's reading. I hope you enjoyed it. If you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner, where for $5 a month, you can help support this podcast. If you do want to engage with more of the content there, there's uh, unique videos, more podcasts, blogs, lots of different things, and a growing community of people who are interested in all things sailing. That's patreon.com forward slash the mariner. Well, that's all from the Mariner's Library today, and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.